folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content, and that's on the lowest tier. On the upper tier, you also get access to our monthly Zoom party state of the union addresses access to a lot of the ongoing investigations that i'm doing documents and a lot of other good stuff so definitely think about either of those all right folks it's just me for this outing but despite that this is a very ambitious show it's the first in what will be at least a two-part series but despite the ambition the theme is simple it is my contention that a mysterious gentleman's club, instrumental in the creation and rise of Los Angeles, California, and involved in several highly ritualistic murders, has served as a plot point in several major films, as well as a slew of lesser-known titles. So Recluse is a huge fan of private detective movies, for those of you who are unaware of this, especially the supernatural-themed ones in the Mouth of Madness, Angel Heart, Lord of Illusions, Cast a Deadly Spell. I mean, this is the stuff that reared me. It's what really inspires me to do the stuff that I do to this day. Uh, so anyway, uh, the private eye movie, bizarrely, seems to be one of the preferred subgenres to tell these particular tales out of school. And fittingly, I was watching one such classic of this particular subgenre, uh, when I became aware of this mysterious club. That would be 1974's Chinatown. So from there, I was able to discern references of it in a slew of other movies. But as Chinatown served as my Rosetta Stone for uncovering this club, I'm going to use it in this installment as a launching pad to explain this network to all of you. <clears throat> so, get ready for the deepest dive ever into chinatown uh not that there really seems to be a lot of competition in this regards strangely despite the involvement of people like robert evans and roman polanski who are sus as all fuck it's themes of incest the uh the conspiracy community seems to have largely overlooked this feature uh in preference to the latest music video for whatever is a trendy pop star nowadays. I have no idea about this kind of stuff, quite frankly. Um, but then again, you know, given how much Chinatown does reveal, I suppose it shouldn't be a total surprise by now that it does tend to get overlooked in favor of less substantial works. Regardless, I shall do my best to write this situation with this episode. So, on that note, let's start the show. Hello, 
So before really digging into the film, I need to address a bit of the early history of Los Angeles, most notably the so-called uh, California Water Wars. So these began at roughly the onset of the 20th century. It was during this time that the city of Los Angeles's population reached over 200,000 residents. Supposedly, this was putting a tremendous strain on the city's water supply. Again, Los Angeles, it's uh, it, it's really kind of shocking that it did become a major city in the first place, to say nothing of a major international hub. On the one hand, it you know really doesn't have a natural harbor anywhere in the immediate area, and um, it was not great farmland. I mean, it's always had issues with water. Uh, you know, they've needed to bring in a lot of water from other parts of the state, uh, pretty much from the beginning, uh, to irrigate a lot of these areas and so forth. So, yeah, it's... For LA to become what it did today, it required a tremendous amount of human terraforming. I mean, really, by right, San Francisco should be the unquestioned gem of California on the West Coast. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, San Francisco, it's got a great natural harbor. It's got much better farmland, a lot more going for it, I would say, other than obviously the oil in Los Angeles, but it's another topic. But anyway, let's get back here to the water wars. So enter two self-taught engineers into the fray. One was the former mayor of LA, Frederick Eaton, the other was an Irish immigrant known as William Mulholland. And yes, folks, the legendary Mulholland Drive in Hollywood is named after this gentleman. So keep that in mind. Anyway, you'll be hearing a lot about that famous stretch of road as well. So that's another reason to uh, uh, keep that going in your brain there. So anyway... About 200 miles northeast of L.A. is Owens Valley. It possessed a considerable amount of water from the Owens River. Eaton and Maholland hatched a plan in which a massive aqueduct would be constructed to transport water from there to the L.A. area. The original Los Angeles aqueduct Maholland built was 223 feet long and inaugurated on November 5th, 1905. So you've got a 23, the skull and bones number in reverse, and remember, remember the 5th of November, all appearing uh, in that particular date. Given the network behind this, this is all rather interesting, as we will get to later. Uh, Los Angeles residents approved the aqueduct in June of 1905 to the tune of $23 million in bond issues uh, that would go fund the project. So again, some really interesting numerology from the beginning with this whole thing. Um, okay, so but before all of this could happen, Eaton and Mulholland had to acquire the land in Owens Valley. That would obviously be helpful to actually own it. 
Eaton went about stealthily purchasing vast tracts of farmland out there before the plans for the aqueduct were known. There was a real sense of urgency as the United States government was considering building its own irrigation system in Owens Valley to assist local farmers. This led Eaton to travel to Washington, D.C. in 1907 to direct, directly lobby President Theodore Roosevelt on behalf of the city. Prevailed and L.A. moved forward. It's also interesting to note that Roosevelt would eventually become an honorary member of uh, this mysterious club that uh, this series was intended to explain to you guys. So, yeah. Keep that in mind as we go along here. Theodore Roosevelt was instrumental in the creation of uh, L.A., setting it up with the water, and uh, he later turned up in this particular club. But anyway, <clears throat> there were problems pretty much as soon as the project, uh, that is the aqueduct, to say, was completed. For one thing, the aqueduct was producing nearly 10 times the amount of water that the city residents needed. It also had gone over budget in the five years from 1908 to 1913 uh, that the construction went on. What it amounted to is that the aqueduct wasn't generating enough revenue for Los Angeles residents to even pay off the interest in the debt that the city had incurred to fund the project. It's a scheme that's been used on all kinds of municipalities time and again. Um, it seems like this is, again, I, I was really struck in rewatching Chinatown as to just how many parallels it has to the modern era. I mean, of course, in Chinatown, um, Noah Cross, the main bad guy, played by John Houston. His cronies had more or less deliberately destroyed their farmland in San Fernando Valley uh, to be able to purchase it on the cheap and to create the perception that there was a water crisis, when in reality they were actually diverting a lot of water and running it out into the ocean. And um, <laughs> there were a lot of rumors back then that this is like what was happening with these people around Eaton and uh, Maholland and... In more contemporary times, when, again, California is beset by droughts, yet again, there has been a lot of diversion of fresh water uh, so that it can go out into the ocean. This is especially true around the San Francisco area. So, again, it kind of begs the question how much of the droughts that occur in California over the years were legitimate and how many were created. Again, I know that's insane to suggest. It just might, you know, have a historical precedent with the people that created Los Angeles, but couldn't happen now, obviously. But anyway, to return to our narrative here. So, you know, they've got this huge debt on the bonds that they uh, issued to fund this aqueduct. Worse, the water wasn't even ending up directly in Los Angeles, but 30 miles to the north, the San Fernando Valley, which was not part of L.A. at the time. So this led to more intrigues on behalf of Eden. In 1909, the Los Angeles Suburban House Home Company was created with 30 members of its board. This is where we get into the kind of the backdrop of Chinatown that I was just alluding to. So all these guys own this land in the San Fernando Valley here that's not a part of L.A. yet. <clears throat> One interesting member of this Los Angeles Suburban Home Company was Henry E. Huntington. 
He was a member of the storied Huntington family, one of the most powerful and longest lasting family dynasties in the history of this country. The Huntingtons have been major players literally since before the American Revolution. They fought in the Continental Army and signed the Declaration of Independence. And in the aftermath, they became even more influential. They were founding or key figures in organizations like the Society of Cincinnati and Skull and Bones. They have multiple family members in both. They also played a crucial role in establishing Mormonism. Having family members marry into both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young's families. Okay. So, uh, by the way, with the character of Noah Cross, it's usually stated that he's kind of a combination of Frederick Eaton and William Mulholland. I would say that that's probably somewhat accurate, but this Henry E. Huntington figure probably also was a bit of an inspiration for Mulholland, or excuse me, for Noah Cross. Huntington was also one of the first people to really uh, recognize the potential of L.A., or at the minimum, he was one of the first major, the Eastern kind of blue blood figures to really push for the major development of L.A. Uh, I suspect that he was most likely the major figure, in fact, I mean, who really built up Los Angeles at the turn of the 20th century. So... Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. His family is even more interesting. And keep all of this in mind as we get into the stuff with Noah Cross and the people around him. But anyway, Huntington was not uh, was not one of the major stakeholders in the Los Angeles Suburban Home Company. The five big dogs in this thing were Odo Brandt of the Title Insurance and Trust Company, Moses H. Sherman, who developed L.A.'s electrical rail system, developer H.J. Whitley, who you will be hearing a lot about in the next installment of this series, General Harrison Otis, the publisher of the Los Angeles Times, and his son-in-law, Harry Chandler, who is not related to Raymond Chandler, by the way, uh, editor of the L.A. Times. It's interesting to note that Otis, General Otis, Harrison Otis, was also a descendant from a prominent Boston Brahmin family. Interestingly, though, they do not appear to have had ties to any of the usual suspect groups like the Cincinnati or Skull and Bones. Otis was born in Marietta, Ohio, however, which was a major stronghold for the Cincinnati. In fact, that was the first town that they established in the state of Ohio. So not totally sold that he didn't have some kind of family connection to these groups. It just hasn't come out yet. Uh, but anyway, Otis Huntington and another member of the Skull and Bones family, E.H. Harriman, had previously plotted with Eden Mulholland on the initial plans for the aqueduct all the way back in 1903. So they were there from the beginning uh, with the initial you know, moves to try to get this aqueduct built and they were there in the background to also cash in on the uh, real estate scam that some of these uh, more pro or these uh, lesser families were also privy to. But anyway, Huntington and Otis's son-in-law, uh, excuse me, Huntington and um, Otis's son-in-law, Harry Chandler, uh, 
as I said before, was also a big figure in this enterprise, were both also members of San Francisco's Bohemian Club, which is another thing you'll be hearing a lot about. So Huntington was directly a member of the Bohemian Club, and he had family members in both Skull and Bones and the Society of Cincinnati. Uh, Chandler was a member of uh, the Bohemian Club, and Otis, it would not surprise me if he had some kind of connection with these groups, but I have not been able to determine it yet. But none of these are the gentlemen's club that I was going to get to, by the way, guys. So hold your water on that. We haven't gotten to it yet. Anyway, let's get back to our narrative here. So <clears throat> returning to the Los Angeles Suburban Home Company. The outfit conspires with Eaton to start buying up property all across San Fernando Valley. Los Angeles voters are then sold on the idea of incorporating the valley into the city proper to help pay for the aqueduct. This comes to pass. Los Angeles becomes the largest city in the world at the time, and the ground is laid for what became Hollywood in and around the San Fernando Valley basically transforms this into some of the most valuable real estate in the entire world uh, within a couple of decades. Most of the people involved in these schemes made a lot of money in the process. L.A. became a major American city and later a major national city, and only a few hundred people died when the original Francis Dam that Mulholland oversaw broke. So, yeah, there really was a dam that broke, and people really did die from it. Fortunately, San Fernando Valley was spared. Coincidentally, too, of course, where all these uh, real estate investments were, right? <laughs> so this is basically what Chinatown is based off of, though I believe this milieu, again, has been referenced in a lot of other works, uh, which we will get to in the next installment. But it probably goes without saying, but William Mulholland is the basis for the Hollis Mulray character whose murder drives a lot of the action in Chinatown. <clears throat> However, Hollis Mulray opposes construction of the film's dam while the real-life Mulholland was on board with these activities from the beginning. This is why uh, he is also a parcel inspiration for the character of Noah Cross, which I've mentioned before. It was played by the famed director John Huston in the film, which is also very interesting. Fred Eden was also an inspiration for the Cross character, but again, I think um, Henry E. Huntington was probably the main one, though nobody will ever admit that, I'm guessing. But anyway, uh, with all that being said, let's start getting... Uh, well, I mean, I want to get into the movie, but before getting into the movie, I really need to discuss a couple of the figures behind the camera. And in doing so, we'll actually cover most of the movie, so there won't really be very much of it left to discuss by the time I'm finished with this. But um, it's necessary, guys. I mean, a lot of these people just have such incredible backgrounds. So let's get going with that. We will start with what would nominally appear to be uh, the most squeaky clean of the figures behind Chinatown. There are th really three major figures behind the scenes responsible for bringing uh, the picture to the public. That would be screenwriter Robert Town, producer Robert Evans, and director Roman Polanski. We'll start with Robert Town here. <clears throat> so, said before, Town is probably the least suspect of the three figures working behind the scenes brings movie to bear, or completion, rather. But like a lot of people from this era, he broke 
into the film working for Roger Corman, which raises a lot of interesting possibilities. For those of you unaware, Corman is the legendary director and producer behind just innumerable amounts of B-horror movie and science fiction movies like The Man with X-Ray Eyes, the early adaptations of The Pit and the Pendulum, the original version of Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, I could go on, but I mean, Corman didn't invent the low-budget horror genre, but he really defined it from the 50s on up through the uh the early 70s at least huge figure in the horror genre and the science fiction genre and just in general and independent filmmaking i mean i know a lot of you are movie buffs who listen to this you probably know who corman is but just to you know give you guys a little background if you're not familiar with him but anyway so why would i suggest that working with roger corman raises some interesting possibilities well are you guys aware that prior to the 2008 financial crisis, Corman told his four children that he had established trusts for them that were worth somewhere in the ballpark of 120 to $160 million, and that each of them could expect to receive some 30 to $40 million from these trusts? Okay, so each kid of his four kids was on, you know, was potentially going to get around 30 to $40 million from these trusts. You guys probably didn't know that. So just how loaded truly how just how loaded Corman truly was is a matter of debate. But I mean his financial empire could have been worth as much as half a billion dollars at one point. Okay, think about that for a moment. Half a billion dollars. How could this be? Yes. Corman has made a lot of freaking movies as a producer and a director over the years. And yes, most of them have made money, some with very impressive returns indeed. But to the best of my knowledge, Corman never really did, I mean, a true blockbuster. Over the span of many, many decades, and with the aid of inflation, I think a few of his movies might have crossed, or crossed the $100 million mark. But the overwhelming majority of them only grossed in the single millions, if that at all. And obviously quite a few of them also lost money too. So, and yet Corman was seemingly worth Steven Spielberg type money as recently as 2008. Something doesn't add up here, guys. And an answer to this enigma may be discerned from where Corman filmed many of his movies in the 70s and the 80s. The Philippines. This is a nation long linked to international terrorism, illicit gold via the long rumored Golden Lily Fund that was supposedly hidden there by the Japanese in the aftermath of the Second World War. So it's essentially their equivalent of the Black Eagle Trust, plundered gold that they had taken from Korea and other places. And also human trafficking. <laughs> I tend to think that the gold is uh, blown may way out of proportion to cover up for the fact that a lot of uh, illicit money generated in the Philippines comes from human trafficking and sex tourism there as well. Um, it's very closely tied to also child pornography, web servers hosting this kind of stuff, which is probably why the Watkins family is there and just a lot of other unsavory things that are overlooked frequently 
why we continue to search for the uh, Japanese war gold, but I digress. Anyway, uh, the heyday of Corman's involvement also occurred during a time of great social instability in the Philippines. This was during throughout the whole reign of the Marcos regime and all of that good stuff. Also, the whole Cold War the situation that prevailed after you know the U.S. withdrew from Vietnam and a lot of the uncertainty in Southeast Asia and the Pacific at the time. So it was a very interesting time frame. Uh, be making movies in the Philippines, to put it mildly. It's also interesting to note that during the early 70s, Roger Corman found a promising young financier to manage his uh, budding business empire. The financier's name was George Sorzos. Yes, Roger Corman was one of the earliest and most vigorous backers of Sorzos's quantum fund. He first invested in it in 1972 and continued to retain Sorzos as his main money manager until at least the late 90s when he wondered if someone else could get him a better return on his money. Apparently, he didn't think George was quite up to the task anymore. Well, so the story goes. Obviously, there have been many, many allegations levied at Hollywood for years over the role it plays in laundering illicit money and aiding the national security community in the United States. And here's Corman doing business with a financier long linked to coup d'etats the world over while making movies in a volatile region of the world long known for contraband. Again, especially the human trafficking stuff. You know, surely this was all just a coincidence, right, kids? Just like Corman's uncanny ability to spot rising talent. Despite, besides good old Robert Town, other figures, another figure you'll be hearing a lot about, Jack Nicholson, also cut his teeth working for Corman. And nor were they alone. Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Dante, John Landis, John Sales, Ron Howard, John Milius, Robert De Niro, and James Cameron, among many others, all got their start working for Roger Corman. Uh, well, Howard was actually a teen actor, as I'm sure many of you are aware, but he got his directorial start working for Corman. But anyway... Really, with the exception of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, virtually every major 70s and 80s filmmaker got their start working with Roger freaking Corman. All right. And I'm sure that's just due to Corman's ability to stretch a buck, right? All right. Um, but to return to Chinatown Scribe. So Robert Towns mainly worked as a writer throughout his long career, though he did write and direct a couple of films. They were Personal Best, Tequila Sunrise, Without Limits, and Ask the Dust. Of those, Tequila Sunrise is by far the best known, and even that one has fallen off most people's radar since it was released in 1988. It was um, a bit of a variation, the buddy cop action film that was so popular during the 80s. And this one, Mel Gibson stars, but as a drug dealer uh, rather than uh, a cop. And, you know, again, he's kind of in that whole unstable, you know, phase, like his lethal weapon character. Anyway, that leads to him linking up with his high school buddy, Kurt Russell, who's now a detective and hilarity ensues or something along those lines. Robert Town is, of course, most well known for his screenplays, however. Chinatown is actually considered to be one of the greatest screenplays, if not the greatest ever penned by many film historians, for what it's worth. 
He's also he also co-wrote the last detail, another Jack Nicholson movie that came out prior to Chinatown, and also co-wrote Warm Baby Shampoo and several Tom Cruise films, including Days of Thunder, The Thir- The Firm, and the first two Mission Impossible films. He also apparently did quite a few uncredited rewrites on movies such as The Godfather, Bonnie and Clyde, Reds, Crimson Tide, etc. etc. I kind of gathered that's actually where a lot of town's reputation is based off of as a script doctor. But anyway, I'm a bit mystified as to the regard the town is held in, quite frankly. Chinatown is, in my opinion, really the only bona fide classic the man has written. Some may throw shampoo in there as well, but I'm not a fan of either Warren Beatty or comedy, so I'm not in the best position to judge that one. But even if we're including that when it leaves him with true two true classics after nearly 50 years of the in the industry, most of the rest of his resume, while respectable, certainly primarily features movies that fall into the solid to good, but not great category. And if that were not enough, there's mounting questions over the authorship of Town's work. Apparently, he employed a former college friend named Edward Taylor as an uncredited writing partner for nearly 40 years. State of affairs began right around the time the town wrote, quote unquote, Chinatown. So Taylor is an enigmatic figure. He was actually a Rhodes Scholar and supremely brilliant, but he shunned the limelight for many years and allowed town to take credit for a lot of his scripts. Um, Taylor or Town has never really acknowledged the role that Taylor played in co-writing most of his work either, uh, which was a major issue with uh, Taylor's family, especially after uh, Taylor died. I think it was in 2012, 2013. It's also interesting to know, too, that Town hasn't had a single thing, I think, produced since Taylor died in 2012, 2013 as well either. Um I know there were rumblings, I think, around 2019 of him doing like a Chinatown prequel with David Finchner, but that never came to fruition. And I would imagine that even if Town was involved with that, it probably would have just basically been him getting a paycheck to lend his name to the project. I mean, the guy was, you know, in his late 80s when they started to talk about this. And as I said before, he's hasn't even, as far as I can tell, had anything produced since Taylor died around 2012, 2013. And, you know, again, he covered up his involvement in his career for years, even to a lot of his closest collaborators. Um, and it's generally been a mystery to a lot of people, including Taylor's family, as to why he tolerated this. Taylor apparently said that Town had done him a major favor when they were younger. Some think this might have been assisting him in getting an abortion or something to that effect. Uh, Taylor, that is to say, back when such things were illegal. So there's a lot of mystery about this, but yeah, uh, town had i mean quite a considerable hold over taylor for many years and it's very strange (laughs) so anyway beyond this it's also widely claimed that director roman polanski had several extensive rewrites on the script as well in fact he you know really was the one who made it into a workable script to film and he was also the one who did the famous ending for the movie as well having written virtually all of it the ending, that is to say. Uh, the original script was around 180 pages, which Polanski also greatly reordered to boot. 
So again, just how much of what ended up on the screen is actually Robert Towns is a matter of debate. Again, is really interesting because this is pretty much the script that his whole legacy and reputation is based off of. And he had an uncredited co-writer on it. Actually, probably had two uncredited co-writers, which we'll get to her in a second, along with Roman Polanski greatly reworking the, uh, the script uh, while they were filming. So, so yeah, I, I also question how much of the original story Town conceived of ended up on screen. So as the story goes, producer Robert Evans approached Town about adapting The Great Gatsby in 1971. Town made a counteroffer of developing a private detective story he had been working on at the time. It's just really in the early stages. Reportedly, he was inspired by a West magazine article entitled Raymond Chandler's L.A. and Carrie McWilliams' classic history, Southern California country and island of land. This is what clued town in on Southern California's water wars, water, water wars from the World War One, from prior to the First World War. So town relocated the action in 1937 so as to capture the atmosphere of Raymond Chandler's L.A. Supposedly, it's now widely acknowledged the town based the Hollis Mulring character on William Holland, as I had noted previously. And then, obviously, the former L.A. mayor, Fred Eaton, was probably Noah Cross, uh, the inspiration for Noah Cross, the John uh, Houston character. But again, William Mahan actually pushed for the construction of the ill-fated St. Francis Dan Lean. Some speculate he was only a partial inspiration. So, again, there's probably a lot of other ones in it as well. Anyway, this is the official story of the genesis of the script. But... I can't help but shake the feeling someone was feeding town ideals even at this stage. One potential candidate is actress Julie Payne, whom town was dating when he started Chinatown, who he later married. It was Payne who provided town with a copy of Carrie McWilliams' Southern California, his primary source for the whole saga of California's water wars. Payne also assisted him throughout the whole process of the script, really from the very beginning. She's another person who probably should have gotten some kind of writing credit as well, along with Edward Taylor, but again. So anyway, Payne has an interesting background. She was the daughter of two Hollywood stars, leading man John Payne and child star Anne Shirley. Uh, both were separated shortly after Payne, or they were set, they separated shortly after Payne was born. Her mother ended up marrying screenwriter Charles Lettier, who effectively served as Julie Payne's father. Lettier was a frequent collaborator with a fellow scribe, surrealist, and Fortean known as Ben Hetch. Besides possibly being the finest screenwriter of his generation, Hetch had a taste for the macabre that may have brought him into some interesting company, as we will discuss uh, maybe in this one if not uh, certainly in the next installment uh, but suffice to say Payne remembered Hetch from her childhood the question is did he ever tell her stories out of school because Hetch would have certainly been in a position to know he also was an old buddy of John Houston's from the 40s as well I should add anyway as for town himself there's not a lot suspect about the guy, as I noted before. I mean, yeah, he cut his teeth in what uh, was likely a huge money laundering racket by Roger Corman. 
Uh, but again, pretty much every upcoming filmmaker in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s was groomed by Corman. And town also had a pretty serious cocaine habit by the late 70s. But again, that was pretty much part of the course for the era and the scene that he was in. And generally speaking, he just uh, comes across in Sam uh, Wasson's The Big Goodbye and Excellent Encounter of Chinatown is just generally a rather reprehensible figure. Um, a guy who took a lot of people's ideals, never gave credit for them, and uh, was physically abusive. Uh, Julie Payne, uh, as well as extremely emotionally abusive. And, uh, town just does not seem like he was a good person on a lot of levels, to put it mildly. So, But anyway, to me, the sketchiest thing about Payne is just in general the hype he gets. As I said before, I mean, the only Stole Coke classic he's done is arguably Chinatown. Uh, which, again, you know, is a script that probably a lot of other people contributed greatly to. I mean, some people might consider something like Shampoo the Firm to be borderline classics, but those works are few and far between for a guy who was on Hollywood for almost 50 years. Most of town, script, town scripts consist of mid-tier action and thrillers. I mean, again, he's got a respectable CV, but does it really compare to a guy like William Goldman, who... I mean, in his, his heyday roughly coincided with town. But I mean, again, Goldman wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, Stepford Wives, Marathon Men, Misery, and The Princess Bride, as well as the novel it was based on, among many others. So is town's career really superior to William Goldman or John Milius or a lot of other you know major screenwriters from this era, John Sales and what have you? Especially when you throw in the possibility that a lot of his work was ghostwritten by Edward Taylor. Which begs the question, why has so much mystique been built up over town over the years? I mean, I'm not trying to throw shade on town or drum up controversy. It's just really hard understanding the regard that this guy's held in based on the body of work he has available to. He, you know, has available out there. And also the fact that... Um, he may not have written a good chunk of the stuff he's credited with writing, quite frankly. So, yeah, one of the many things that does not make sense about all of this. He's kind of the antithesis of Roman Polanski. I mean, Polanski, you know, again, town, I mean, on a personal level was a piece of shit. But I mean, Polanski went way beyond that, obviously. But on a professional level, I mean, Polanski at least has talent. I will say that. Uh town i kind of feel like the jury is bit out on uh one guy who was both a piece of shit and probably didn't have much talent is the next one though that's up for consideration and that would be producer robert evans again i'm sure a lot of you listening to this have some familiarity with evans but there's a lot of meat on this bone so bear with me so everything about evans is mysterious he described his parents as second-generation Jews. His mother's side of the family apparently had some money. Uh, by the time Robert Evans comes of age, his brother Charles Evans is already running a successful women's fashion house in New York City. Charles eventually sells this to Revlon in 1962 for a nice profit, and from there he gets into real estate investment. Again, a lot of these guys seem to get into real estate. That's interesting. <laughs> But anyway, eventually he also gets into movie production as well. And he ended up uh, 
uh, producing a couple of movies in his own right. Uh, they included Tootsie, the uh, Dustin Hoffman film, along with Monkey Shines and uh, Showgirls. Uh, one of those is worth watching, and it's probably not the one you think. <laughs> As for Robert, he started out working for Charles at his fashion house while also doing voice work on radio before even turning 18. This apparently led to him relocating to L.A. during the mid-1950s. As the story goes, he was spotted by actress Norman Shear at the Beverly Hills Hotel in 1956. Thinking that he bore an uncanny resemblance to her late husband, she had him cast in the biopic of the man uh, of her late husband, as to say, which was called The Man of a Thousand Faces. He soon landed, Robert Evans, that is to say, soon landed major roles in adaptations of Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises and the Hope Lang vehicle, The Best of Everything. In 1959, he was apparently dissatisfied working as an actor and decided to reinvent himself as a producer. So in 1966, he options a book called The Detective that becomes a film in 68 starring Frank Sinatra. By this time, Evans is the head of production of Paramount. As far as I can tell, he hasn't released a single film as a producer when he got his gig at Paramount in 1966 as a vice president for production. He was then bumped up to head of production the following year, which also witnessed the first movie, uh, the first movie attributed him as a producer being released. Now, granted, in Hollywood, you can go years without getting an actual credit on anything. So it's not entirely unheard of for a guy like Evans to have nothing on his resume between 1959 and 1967. But it's still a little surprising a guy who had yet to get a movie made was suddenly put in charge of what was then the ninth largest studio in Hollywood. The official story holds that Evans' rise was driven by a puff piece written by Peter Bart of the New York Times. He was the Times' main correspondent in Hollywood during this era. So he encounters Evans during the mid-1960s, and he was so impressed by the aspiring producer and fellow New Yorker that he decided to write an article about Evans for the Times, because, you know, who doesn't, get, you know, what unknown producer doesn't get a puff piece written about them for the New York Times? Uh, anyway, it was read by golf and western head Charles Blue Dorn, who had just um, and uh, golf and western had just recently acquired the struggling Paramount, and they were looking for somebody to head it. So the bar piece impressed Blue Dorn so much that he tracked Evans down and offered him a job. Blue Dorn also makes sure he sets Evan up Evans up in style. In 1966. Shortly after having hired the young producer, he purchases the famous Woodland Estate in Beverly Hills for Evans to the tune of $290,000. That's several million in today's dollars. If you've seen The Kid Stays in the picture, you know how plush this estate is. It was designed by architect John Wolfe in Southern California Regency style, which in turn was a variation on the architecture of 18th century France. And not only does Blue Dorn buy this thing for Evans, he then has Paramount pony up over a million dollars to do improvements on it to get it up to Evans' specifications. Supposedly, this mainly went towards installing a state-of-the-art projection room into an expanded pool house. 
Evans once boasted that here uh, that it was here that more deals were made in the room than at Paramount during both of those days. Based upon things we'll soon address, it's worth pondering if other things were installed at Woodlands to make the closing of the deals all the more easier. But let's get back to the narrative here. So Evans takes over and totally revives Paramount with a series of hits. Rosemary's Baby, which Polanski directed, the original versions of The Italian Job and True Grit, The Odd Couple, Harold and Maude, Serpio, the first and second Godfather movies, and one of the most underrated films of the 1970s, The Conversation, which was done by Francis Ford Coppola. So yeah, there's a lot of iconic movies in a seven-year stretch. And The Crown Jewel was arguably the last movie he made while directly, uh, while directly running Paramount, which was Chinatown. Anyway, he goes solo after Chinatown, and for a while the hits continue. I mean solo, he basically left to become a producer, an independent producer. So these included Marathon Man, Black Sunday, and Urban Cowboy. And this gave Evans a string of hits all the way up through 1980. It was at this point both Evans' career and his life went off the rails, which I'll get to in a moment. But suffice to say, after 1980, he's only credited with producing one film for the rest of that decade. And then he comes back with a steady series of films during the 90s. The Two Jakes, which was a sequel to Chinatown that brought back all the major players, save for Polanski, Sliver, Jade, The Phantom, The Out-of-Towners, and Saint. Many of you have probably not thought of any of those films for years if you've ever heard of them in the first place. That's because they pretty much all flopped, some pretty spectacularly, with I think the exception of Sliver. That was a... Uh, Sharon Stone's sex movie that came out to cash in on her uh, stardom from Basic Instinct, more or less. Um, Evans was still able to get funding, though, up through 2003 when he produced How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. This was his final feature as a producer and, and performed respectably. It was probably his biggest hit, I think, um, in years, actually, so... And he also made the uh, the 2012 documentary, The Kids, or the 2002 documentary, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which was based upon his own autobiography that was also moderately successful. And then there was the 2003 uh, animated Comedy Central series, Kid Notorious, that was based on this bio, but it didn't fare quite as well and only lasted one season. Kid Notorious is really interesting, though, for some reasons we'll get to here in a second. But anyway... Evans' luck appears to have run out at this point. When he died in 2019, he hadn't been credited with anything in 16 years. And frankly, most of his resurgence during the 90s was driven mainly by Evans' persona. His highly successful autobiography, The Kid Stays in the Picture, did much to enhance the mystique. It was released in 1994, and then also you had the Dustin Hoffman factor. He reportedly impersonated Evans twice for feature films. First as the victim, first as the villain mumbles in the Dick Tracy film. And more obviously as the Hollywood producer in Wag the Dog. The Martin Landau character in Entourage was also said to be based on Evans. And supposedly the second Jake, the one played by Harvey Keitel and the two Jakes was also based on Evans. Uh, anyway, it's interesting to note that in both Wag the Dog as well as Evans' self-serving cartoon, Kid Notorious, he is depicted in various forms of spycraft and intrigue. 
the Peter Bard puff piece in the New York Times that started all of this uh, had described Evans as running, quote, a spy system in the New York publishing world in the, uh, end quote, in the never-ending quest to find new titles to option. That's interesting, right? Everyone seems to delight in the image of Evans' knee-deep in espionage of one kind or another, right? Mm. It's probably just a coincidence, though, I'm sure. Um, but to return to the 90s and the kids' resurgence, while these efforts restored Evans to hipness for a time, would it have been enough to procure him a steady stream of funding for one flop after another for over a decade? Though it did almost surely... Uh, shore up his finances after a really rough uh, period in the 1980s that saw him bogged down with a lot of legal issues. Well, funding for anything in Hollywood is possible, but Robert Evans lived an even more colorful life than most of the denizens of Tinseltown. So let's get into that private life now. So, for instance, divorce is a common occurrence in Hollywood, but Evans had seven wives over the course of his life, with most of his marriages barely lasting a year. His longest marriage to actress Allie McGraw lasted all four years. For our purposes here, the most interesting of his exes is Phyllis George, a former beauty queen and CBS reporter, sports reporter. After divorcing Evans, she married John Y. Brown, the Kentucky Fried Chicken mastermind who became Kentucky's governor in 1979. During this time, George was his first lady. It was also during Brown's administration that the company experienced its heyday. This was an organized crime syndicate based out of Lexington, Kentucky, primarily composed of ex-law enforcement and military officers. It was deeply involved in arms and drugs trafficking with links to the Medellin cartel and potentially the Contra Supply Network as well. Members were also active in the storied Kentucky Derby parties that Brown and George were fixtures at during his time as governor. Other regulars at these parties during this era included people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But I digress. Robert Evans' troubles began in earnest during 1980. During that year, he was convicted of cocaine trafficking. It involved both Evans and his brother Charles buying a large quantity of the drug, and this was just a warm-up. Also during this time, he began a relationship with a woman named Karen Greenberger, but who frequently used the name of Laney Jacobs. Greenberger hailed from Miami and had established links to the Medellin cartel there as well. This led to some shady dealings with a New York-based vaudeville promoter named Roy Radin. Raiden was trying to break into the film industry, leading Greenberger to introducing Evans and Raiden. Evans wanted to make a film about New York City's legendary Cotton Club, a subject Raiden also had a keen interest in as well. He and Greenberger also had a relationship. Well, I should say, Raiden had a relationship with Greenberger, and so did Evans. They both did. So anyway... Evans had been trying to make what became the Cotton Club since 1980, often with sketchy funding, to put it mildly. After his last film, Popeye, flopped, and Evans' cocaine conviction, Paramount dropped him like a hot potato. Evans then got funding from the Saudi arms baron, Adian Kashagi, and the Vegas casino owners, Edward and Fred Damani, I believe, thus accepting funding from Rain and Greenberger, who were pro. Greenberger, who were probably getting their money for drug trafficking on behalf of the Middle cartel, wasn't really an issue by this point for Evans. 
you know, from Kashagi and casino owners, you pretty much have already crossed the Rubicon in that regard. So Robert Evans always aimed big for Cotton Club. He had the original script written by novelist and godfather creator Mario Puzo while enlisting Robert Altman to direct. But Puzo's script was a mess, and Altman had dropped out by 1984. So led Evans to bringing in Francis Ford Coppola first to rewrite Puzo's script and then to direct the film. So Coppola and Evans had clashed badly over The Godfather, and there was still a lot of bad blood between them. Coppola mainly signed on because he was hard up for money at the time himself. Nonetheless, a power struggle soon broke out between the two over the film. Coppola ultimately prevailed, not that it mattered much. When the final film uh, made it to the screen in late 1984, it was both a commercial and a critical disaster. After blowing nearly $60 million in making it, which you know, is definitely well over $100 million in today's dollars, the movie couldn't even make back half that at the box office. And that's even including, and that's not even including the advertising costs for this thing. I mean, it might have had a budget of close to like a hundred million and then, you know, only made maybe 40 or 50 million or something like that. I mean, it was just terrible for the time. So Evans arguably had more pressing concerns by this point, however. Raiden was convinced Evans and Greenberger were trying to cut him out and was threatening to make waves over this. So in 1983, Raiden turns up dead, murdered. Evans was implicated and the ordeal continued until 1991. It was at this point that Greenberger was convicted of second-degree murder, having hired several contract killers to murder Raiden. She also testified that Evans was in no way involved, though doubt has long remained on that point. As I'm sure many of you are aware, there's even more to this story than what I've already told you. You see, prior to hooking up with Evans, Raiden had already ran afoul of the law. He owned a mansion at the Southampton in Long Island. This mansion was supposedly the site of some wild S&M-laced sex parties. So during 1980, Melanie Hiller, an actress and Playboy centerfold, attended one such party. Afterwards, she alleged, she alleged that she had been beaten, raped, and filmed during the evening. Eventually, a New York businessman pled guilty to assaulting her. There have been long-standing allegations that Raiden used his influence with the local police to keep the incident from implicating even more people. And of course, there was one of the four contract killers who was hired to murder Raiden in 1983, William Mincer. This was a guy Maury Terry described as a cult contract killer for the organization Sam Killings and the Ultimate Evil. This led to much speculation that Sam Cole played a role in both the Heller incident and what became the Cotton Club murder, though everything Terry has written should really be taken with a huge grain of salt, and even more doubt has been cast in his linkage of um, the son of Sam Cole with some of these other figures of late, so yeah, uh, it's, it, it's very debatable, uh, but anyway... There's another angle to this that's even more interesting. It goes by the name of Thomas Corbely. Corbely was a true international man of mystery with links to the U.S. intelligence community and organized crime in equal measures. He's often described as a lawyer, but his main racket was working as a private detective. 
did a lot of work for Kroll Associates over the years, a private intelligence firm that's been likened to the Wall, to a Wall Street version of the CIA. They were actually also the ones who um, were in charge of security at the uh, Twin Towers on the day of 9-11 as well. So Kroll's been linked to a lot of intrigues over the years. Corbelli was also very close to Roy Cohn, Donald Trump's infamous attorney and political mentor, and did a lot of work for Mr. Cohn over the years, which is why it's especially interesting uh, that Corbelli turns up in a lot of major sex scandals. One was the Perfumo affair, which brought down the Macmillan government in the UK and probably played a role in JFK's assassination. I deal extensively with this in my book, A Special Relationship, especially Corbley's role. So I recommend checking this out for more details on all of this. Later, Corbley was described as the godfather of this Long Island-based S&M scene that Raiden was active in. And towards the end of Corbley's life, he turned up in the Heidi Fleiss scandal. For those of you underwear, Heidi Fleiss was one of several Hollywood madams. At a minimum, Evans was one of her customers, though there have been longstanding rumors that he was actually dating her during the early 90s when her um, prostitution ring was at its apex. Chinatown star Jack Nicholson was another one of her clients. Apparently, she gave Jack girls for free because it was such an honor to service him. <laughs> another figure lingering the backdrop of Fuzz's operation was Thomas Corbelli, who gave her money after her legal woes began. In his 2003 obit in the New York Times, Robert Evans, uh, this is uh, the obituary for Thomas Corbley. Robert Evans described Corbley as a lifelong friend. Corbley hailed from New York originally and could have known Evans since then. But Corbley was also a longtime fixture in Hollywood, first turning up there during the 1950s. He had several affairs with various actresses over the years. By all accounts, and he fit right into Hollywood. Evans described him as the quote quintessential playboy of the 40s and 50s. Corbley was often said to have movie star looks well into his 60s. I point out all of this because I've begun to wonder if Thomas Corbley was a partial inspiration for Nicholson's JJ JJ Giddy's character in Chinatown, and later the Chu Jakes for that matter. Evans likely knew Corbley by the point Chinatown was in production. Nicholson surely knew him by the late 1980s, but it's possible they got to know each other much earlier than this. Giddies is an L.A.-based private detective, stylishly dressed, media savvy, often caught up in cases involving bedroom work. While Corbley was more internationally based, the rest is pretty much close to the real-life figure especially the um, obsession both of them seem to have with uh, uh, capturing affairs and that kind of thing. And Nicholson even looks a bit like Corbley to boot. Granted, I mean, this would have been a highly romanticized version of Corbley you see in Chinatown, but I do feel like uh, there should be maybe a closer look taken as to whether or not he was the actual, or at least one of the uh, inspirations for the character of J.G. Giddies. Um, before moving along, there's one other interesting friend of Robert Evans I wanted to address here. Henry Kissinger. Yes. The Nixon National Security Advisor turned Ford Secretary of State was a longtime friend of Robert Evans, but was in regular contact with him specifically throughout his time in the Nixon and Ford administrations. 
Kissinger procured elaborate statues for Evans to furnish his Woodlands estate with. He offered to intercede with Ally McGraw in a bid to try to save Evans' marriage to her. And apparently he was a house guest at Woodlands a time or two. I've not been able to determine when Evans got to know Kissinger, but they appear to have been very tight by at least the early 70s, if not sooner. This was in the midst of Evans' coke field screenings and parties at Woodlands and while Watergate was unfolding. And Henry Kissinger was there, rubbing elbows with Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. So it must have been a really interesting milieu, to be sure. Again, this also further, I think, raises the prospect that Thomas Corbley was probably a part of this uh, milieu going all the way back to the late 60s, early 70s as well. But I digress. Let's, let's move on here. All right, so <clears throat> we finally come to the last of the figures behind the screen that I wanted to focus on, and the one that many of you are probably most familiar with, the Franco-Polish filmmaker Roman Polanski. As with many individuals we've explored thus far, a lot about Polanski's background just doesn't make a lot of freaking sense. He was supposedly born in Paris to Jewish parents during 1933. The Polanski family, who were from Poland originally, then moved back in 1937 as war was in the air across Europe. Basically, they moved back into a country Germany was threatening to invade. After the German invasion and occupation of Poland, Polanski found himself in the uh, Krakow ghetto as a young child. Uh, he was separated from his parents. His mother ended up dying in Auschwitz. Uh, his father ended up at a work camp, and Polanski was only reunited with him after the war. Polanski escaped the Krakow ghetto in 1943 and wandered the Polish countryside, then a proverbial wasteland. I'm sure you guys have probably heard stories of German soldiers using him as target practice. Um, the German occupation was brutal. It's estimated that nearly a fifth of Poland's population died during this time. Polanski prevailed, and he ended up returning to Krakow uh, once the war ended, and there he was reunited with his father. Not long afterwards, Poland fell under the sway of the Soviet Union. A little address, Polanski actually began his film career in a communist country. During the mid-1950s, he attended uh, the National Film School at Lotz and appeared in several films as an actor in Poland. Began directing in 1955 with the short film The Rower. He made several other short films before graduating in 1959. His first feature-length film was 1962's Knife in the Water, also made in communist Poland. It became a hit in the West and gained Polanski international recognition. As a result, he soon relocated to France, where he had several short, where he had made several short films during the early 60s. So the timing for all this is really curious. Polanski was allowed to relocate from a communist country to France shortly after the failed push against de Gaulle and the um, secret army organization's litany of assassination attempts against him. Uh, this is also during the lead up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which unfolded during the fall of 1962, and it's also coming not long after the Berlin Crisis of 1961. Given how much international tension then existed between the West and the communist world, uh, by the early 60s, it's a bit surprising Polanski was able to move with such ease as he did between Paris and, uh, or between France and Poland. 
But on the other hand, due to the suspected Anglo-American support for the secret army organization, or AS, de Gaulle began pursuing detente with the Soviet Union during the same time frame as well, as this during the 60s. So was Polanski's move a part of these intrigues? I mean, I know that's a bit of a stretch, but given the trajectory of Polanski's life, it's it's really interesting that this whole period is largely glossed over despite you know unfolding at a very significant time historically in a very you know it was very much a hot spot for some of these uh, events then unfolding polanski was entering into a very turbulent situation in france from a communist country to work in an industry with significant potential to manipulate western public opinion it really seems a stretch of credibility that polanski was ever just a simple filmmaker doesn't it Polanski didn't make another feature film until 1965 and only worked on one short during the ensuing three years, which is also very odd. He apparently was unable to break into the French film industry due to xenophobia, so he relocated once again, this time to England. He enjoyed immediate success there with his first two English-language films, Repulsion and Cul-de-Sac. Hollywood soon beckoned, and he made The Fearless Vampire Killers for MGM in 1967. This film was another success and paved the way for Polanski uh, to adapt Rosemary's Baby, which soon became one of the most iconic films of that era. Tragedy stuck Polanski not long afterwards, which we'll get to in a moment. 1974's Chinatown was the first film he made in the States since Rosemary's and would prove to be the last film that he ever made to hear. After 1979's Tess, he wouldn't make another movie until 1986. For the next 16 years, he released a steady stream of films, but to mixed results. 1988's Frantic and 1999's The Ninth Gate were both moderate successes at the box office, ensuring plans he was still able to find funding. In 2002, he made The Pianist, a biopic of the Jewish musician Wanslaw Spizzleman, I believe, a fellow Holocaust survivor. The film became a major critical and commercial hit, eventually netting Polanski an Oscar for Best Director. It was a remarkable career resurgence, especially considering the fate of several of the other figures we've considered thus far. I mean, I haven't even gotten into the many scandals Polanski was involved in. To wit, we shall start with one of his mysterious friends, Wojtek Frykowski, I believe. He was one of the individuals killed by the Manson family, along with Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, at the residency on the night of August 8th, 1969. Polanski is said to have known Frykowski, a fellow Pole, uh, who was also trying to break into the film industry from the old country. Again, this would be communist Poland, which Frakowski also departed from for the rest, eventually ending up in the States. At some point, he starts a relationship with Abigail Folger, the coffee heiress, and became a drug dealer in the L.A. area. Just how involved Frykowski was involved in the drug trade has been a matter of debate, but it's generally agreed that he supplied the novel drugs such as cocaine and MDNA to the Hollywood crowd that frequented the Tate-Polanski residency. Frykowski may have been supplied by a trio of men. Harrison picked Dawson, Tom Harrigan, and Billy Doyle. 
previously these three men had been booted from uh, the Polanski residency, but the director himself during a party in which they had behaved too aggressively. It was a farewell party for Tate and Polanski. I think this was around 67 or 68, who were departing LA to work on separate projects. During this time, Abigail Folger and Frykowski served as house sitters, while the trio of Dawson, Doe, and Harrigan became regulars at the increasingly wild parties being thrown at the Polanski residency. A fourth man, a former Marine and reputed assassin named Charles Takat, appears to have been the ringleader and occasional guest uh, at the residency as well. The ringleader of the uh, trio of drug dealers, that is to say. <laughs> Eventually, things went south between the denizens of the Polanski residence as the court and the quartet of criminals. There have been long-standing allegations that Doyle, after having burned people at the Polanski house on some type of drug deal, was whipped, anally raped, and filmed by Frykowski and other guests. These allegations made Doyle and company prime suspects for the LAPD shortly after the Tate murder surfaced, naturally enough. Nor was this the only rumor of a videotape of a sadomasochistic nature originating from the Plansky residency floating around. There are equally persistent rumors that police found a litany of videotapes of a very sexually explicit nature at the house. One-time Manson associate Bobby uh, Bussolani, I believe, claimed kids were procured on the strip, that drugs and filmed being whipped at the Polanski residency. Another account holds that sex tapes of Tate and Polanski were found, along with others involving various Hollywood stars and other VIPs. Charles Manson, years before Polanski became a convicted pedophile, once darkly hinted that the revelers at the Plansky residency even dabbled in, quote, kitty porn. Regardless, there are a few other interesting things about the quartet of criminals Dawson, Harrigan, Doyle, and Takat worth noting. Harrigan and Doyle were both reportedly Canadians, Doyle from Toronto. Doyle, Harrigan, and Dawson, who were all 23 at the times of the murders, incidentally, were also all romantically involved with Cass Elliott of the Mamas and Papas. Indeed, it's likely through Elliott that Frykowski became involved with Doyle and company. It's also interesting to note that not only were John and Michelle Phillips, Cass's fellow bandmates and Mama and Papa, said to have appeared in some of these sex tapes, there have been persistent allegations that John Phillips was a major figure in this SNM-centric ring. So keep in mind, Thomas Corbally, the private detective whom I believe partly inspired Nicholson's J.J. Giddy's character, was involved in a VIP-linked S&M scene on Long Island about a decade later, and he had been a regular fixture in Hollywood since the 1950s and was described by Robert Evans' lifelong friend. Also, the sex scene he was active in the early 60s in the UK that ties into the Perfumo affair was really heavy on S&M and other bizarre trappings as well. So, all of that going on. Evans and Polanski had just had their first big hit together. That would be Rosemary's Baby about a year before the murders. When Polanski returned to the States after his wife murder, he went to Paramount Studios before consulting the police. So that's interesting. 
the time Evans was the head of production there. So yeah, he wanted to possibly go see and talk to Evans after his wife was murdered by the Manson family before he even spoke to the police. Very interesting, especially if Evans also knew Thomas Corbley during this time. Returning to Dawson, Harrigan, Doyle, and Takat, I also wanted to briefly touch upon their deep connections. Pick Dawson was the son of a State Department official, while both Doyle and Takat claimed to have been working for some type of intelligence service during the time of the murders. Takat almost surely served in military intelligence, while both he and Doyle knew Hank Fine, a Hollywood public relations man who served in the Army's military intelligence service during World War II and whose family believed he continued to work as a spy until his death in 1975. It's also interesting to note that Colonel Paul Tate, Sharon Tate's father, was also in military intelligence. Thus, there's a major threat in the Manson killings that's often ignored in the perpetual quest to lay everything at the feet of the CIA. Though the Pacific branch of the military intelligence service certainly ran stay-behind operations in the Pacific theater, which the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, had no involvement whatsoever, which the Manson killings have frequently been likened to as a stay-behind operation, that is to say. But I digress. So, to recap, at the time of his wife's murder, Polanski was involved in a scene featuring various Hollywood starlets and rockers, various foreign nationals, some including himself from behind the Iron Curtain, thriving drug traffic, potential sex tapes featuring S&M and minors, and various operators from the military, including possibly his father-in-law. And then he becomes involved in one of the most notorious murders in the nation's history before anally raping a 13-year-old girl less than a decade later. The particular rape occurred at the Mulholland Drive area home of his Chinatown star, Jack Nicholson. Jack wasn't present at the time of the assault, conveniently enough, being in Colorado for a ski trip. But his live-in girlfriend, Angelica Houston, the daughter of uh, Chinatown co-star Jack Houston, was uh had walked in uh, while the assault was unfolding but or excuse me she was out when the assault started but later returned while the event was unfolding behind closed doors supposedly she apparently became suspicious but was told to believe by Polanski who informed her that he was just doing a photo shoot with the girl uh, I should point out too that cocaine after the um the girl and her uh, mother called the police on Polanski the next day. The police came back and searched the residency and they found cocaine there, which um, Houston was charged with. And there were rumors at the time, i.e. the late 70s, that she was going to testify against Polanski in exchange for having the cocaine possession dropped. But apparently all of this was smoothed over so that um, Polanski didn't... Uh, uh, was able to get a lesser charge, if I remember correctly. But anyway, uh, this was not the only time Klansky was accused of raping a minor. Of course, uh, during the mid-70s, he uh, spent a lot of time in Switzerland, where he was frequently uh, said to be eloping with 16-year-olds, though 
it was technically the legal age of consent in Switzerland at the time, so it wasn't theoretically illegal, just very questionable. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, other women have come forward in subsequent years alleging that he did in fact rape them while they were minors. One of them was actress Charlotte Lewis. In 2010, she claimed the Polanskid raped her during the filming of Pirates when she was 16. This would have occurred nearly a decade after the initial charges against Polanski and after he was you know, living in Paris, basically, as a fugitive from U.S. justice. Obviously, there's a lot more that could be said about Polanski and his fixation with underage girls, but this is not meant to be an inclusive account. There's also a lot more that could be said about the Manson family and the possible links. Some Sam and all this other stuff, too, but again... You know, this stuff really warrants like its own episode. I don't want to get like too bogged down in the woods with all of in the weeds with all of this. Uh, again, this is about Chinatown. So I'm trying to give you guys background and the historical basis of the figures and what have you behind the camera, in front of the camera, and so forth. So uh one thing that I will point out, there was another guy who was suspected of possibly being a part of this milieu around the Polanski residency it was William Mincer. Who, as I've mentioned previously, was uh, the guy who was ultimately one of the individuals convicted of murdering Roy Raiden, ultimately, who had been hired by Karen Greenberger, alias Lainey Jacobs, uh, who Robert Evans had had an affair with. So, again, raises some interesting possibilities that uh, this future contract killer, hired by one of Evans' girlfriends, was frequenting this scene with Polanski and his uh, soon to be murdered wife. But anyway, let's turn now to two figures who appear in front of the camera on screen because they also have some interesting backgrounds and are very relevant to understanding what Chinatown is really getting at here. So, yeah, it probably goes without saying, but I've got to talk about Jack Nicholson. Like pretty much every other major figure involved with Chinatown, old Jack has a really murky background. But not only that, it seems to eerily parallel one of the most shocking plot points of the film Chinatown. In 1974, just as Chinatown was about to be released, a journalist writing a profile of Nicholson supposedly made a startling discovery. <clears throat> Ethel Mae Nicholson, the woman Jack grew up believing to be his mother, was in fact his grandmother. His actual mother was June Nicholson, a showgirl Jack had grown up believing was his sister. By the time this revelation came out, Ethel and June were both dead, along with much of the rest of Nicholson's family. The story was confirmed by Lorraine Nicholson, a woman Jack had grown up believing was his sister, but was in fact his aunt. And she was, I think, really the only major relation he had left at this point. Basically, this totally upended the perception of his family, or so the story goes. There's also a lot of dispute over Nicholson's father. He's generally reported to be an Italian-American showman named Donald uh, Versilio, I think, uh, who was married at the time when June became pregnant. But there's also speculation that June's manager, Eddie King, could have also been the father. Regardless, June was only 17 at the time, which in theory, is what led to the decision for Ethel to claim Jack's parentage as her own. While neither June or Ethel ever told Nicholson this while they were alive is unknown. 
It's also interesting to note that the family moved into the affluent Spring Lake, New Jersey, shortly after Nicholson started high school. This was supposedly after they had come from rather meager backgrounds. This area is sometimes known as the Irish Riviera. It's also interesting to note that shortly after relocating to L.A. in the 50s, Nicholson joined the California Air National Guard. Specifically, he joined in 1957 and did his basic training at Lackland Air Force Base. This is a facility located near San Antonio, Texas, and which is a major military hub. The Army Base Fort Sam Houston is also located here in addition to another Air Force Base and one that's far more notorious. This would be Randolph Air Force Base. It was here that paperclip, paperclip Nazi scientists like Herbert Strohold oversaw, quote, aviation medicine on behalf of the Air Force up until at least the late 1950s. San Antonio also happens to be where novelist and famed UFO contactee Willie Strieber grew up. Strieber would later claim his infamous secret school was located in the San Antonio area. Strieber would have attended it shortly before Jack did his basic at nearby Lackland. That Nicholson was in the Air Force National Guard is most interesting in light of the mysterious Lookout Mountain Air Force Base located in Hollywood Hills, Laurel Canyon. I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with this from David McGowan's book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Laurel Canyon's witnessed a lot of weird deaths and so forth over the year. The um, Manson killings unfolded in Laurel Canyon, and they were kind of bookend about a decade later by the Wonderland killings. And in between, there was a lot of other weird stuff that went on. A lot of the figures that we've been discussing had deep ties to Laurel Canyons, but also Hollywood Hills in general. This whole region is really significant. Um, but, you know, we'll get into that more in another installment, probably. But anyway, rumors have persisted for years that um, Lookout Mountain worked closely with Hollywood on psychological warfare efforts. Uh, the base was a fully functioning movie studio that involves that employed some 19,000 people or it produced some 19,000 features over the course of several decades. Nicholson's longtime mansion is not far from the Lookout Mountain Air Force Base. Suppose and this is also the same mansion where Polanski supposedly raped 13-year-old as well. Supposedly, Nicholson was discharged from the Air Force in 1962 when his enlistment ended. He had been called up during the previous year in the midst of the 1961 Berlin crisis, around the time Polanski was relocating from a communist country to France. So there's a recurring Air Force thread throughout this, so that's another thing to keep in mind. But anyway, to return to Nicholson's backstory for a moment, not only is the identity of his true father unknown, but Nicholson apparently has no birth certificate. In fact, there's, there's no record of his existence until 1951 when a certificate of delayed report of birth was filed. So to recap then, there is no record of Jack Nicholson having existed until 1954, both his suspected mother and biological mother were dead by that time, by the time he found this out. And he basically had only one living relative left to confirm his family situation. And aunt he grew up believing was his sister. None of this was ever an issue for him, even when he enlisted in the Air Force. Like having a birth certificate. It's other stuff. Obviously, something just 
doesn't add up here. Um, before moving along, it's also worth noting that Nicholson had dated Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and Papas for a time during the early 1970s. The reader will recall that she, along with bandmates John Phillips and Cass Elliott, were part of the drug-fueled party scene at the Polanski residence prior to Sharon Tate's murder. There have been persistent allegations that John Phillips, Michelle's one-time husband, was deeply involved in the videotape shot during this time frame. And finally, Cass Elliott is likely who put Wojtek Frakowski, Polanski's old friend from Poland, in contact with military-connected drug traffickers. It's another interesting thing about Jack's life, and then also his possible relationship with Thomas Corbley and all this other good stuff that we've already addressed thus far. All right, so... <clears throat> One other actor I wanted to talk about right quick here before we get into the movie proper. Legendary director John Huston, who appears in Chinatown as Noah Cross, the film's principal villain. Huston was certainly an apt choice for this part, to put it mildly. As with Nicholson, there's a lot about Huston's background, or not just Nicholson, right? Pretty much almost everybody I've talked about thus far. But anyway, his background just doesn't add up. The son of a fam famed actor, Walter Houston, John mostly lived and studied in boarding schools throughout his childhood. He supposedly dropped out of school at the age of 13 and became a professional boxer two years later. Or actually, I think it was right after he dropped out of high school, if I'm not mistaken. By the age of 15, he was supposedly the top-ranked amateur lightweight boxer in all of California. It was now the early 20s, and Houston was living in Hollywood. He became obsessed with film and relocated to New York. There, he studied with his father in a bid to become an actor. He then had facial surgery and departed for Mexico for a few years. While there, he became a member of that nation's cavalry before returning to California. All this would have occurred by 1926. Houston was officially born in 1906, so by the time he was 20, he had already worked as a professional boxer, had had facial reconstructive surgery, and become a cavalry officer in Mexico's military. Do you guys believe any of this shit? I don't. Anyway, after returning to the States, Houston decided to become a writer. Very early on, Fortean H.L. Macon founder of the American Mercury, bought two of Houston's short stories, giving him immediate credibility. As many of you are probably aware, uh, Mencken was a prominent early American libertarian, which was reflected in the American Mercury during its early days. After he sold the publication, it drifted further and further to the right. People like American Nazi Party founder George Lincoln Rockwell would work for the publication before it finally fell under the control of the milieu around the Pioneer Fund but I digress. So by the early 1930s, Houston moves back to LA from New York City and starts working as a screenwriter. By this time, his father is established as a major star in Hollywood. The stage seems to be set for John to join him, but then things hit a snag. In 1933, while driving drunk, Houston was involved in a car accident that sent his then girlfriend through the windshield. Often, the woman suffered severe head trauma, but survived. Houston's next victim wasn't so fortunate. The same year, while again drinking and driving, he hit and killed actress Tosca Rowland, 
In fairness, there have been persistent rumors that it was actually Clark Gable who killed her. Houston was simply paid off to take the blame. Wonderful guy he is, right? After being absolved from blame for the woman's death by the coroner's jury, the quote-unquote traumatized Houston moved to London and then Paris for a time. After existing as, quote, a drifter in Europe for several years, he returned to L.A. in 1937 and started writing scripts again. Four years later, he was bumped up to the director's chair for a film called The Maltese Falcon. This was the first in a series of highly successful films, many starring Humphrey Bogart, that Houston made over the next decade. Other titles included Across the Pacific, Key Largo, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, The Asphalt Jungle, and African Queen. Many of these films have proven to be highly influential, especially in regards to film noir and jungle-centric action movies. There was there would probably be no Indiana Jones or like franchises were it not for Houston. He arguably created the Hollywood Private Eye movie as well, which I will be eternally grateful to him for, despite the fact that he is a complete and utter piece of shit. <laughs> Houston would continue directing for the next 30 plus years after his heyday ended in 1951. The results were not nearly as impressive, to put it mildly. With a few exceptions, like The Misfits, The Night of the Iguana, and Annie, he mostly oversaw a series of box office bombs for decades. Naturally, Houston never seems to have had serious trouble getting funding for many of his films, despite such a hit-and-miss track record after 51. So, to recap. The son of Hollywood royalty, Houston claimed to have been a professional boxer and a Mexican cavalry officer by the age of 20, he killed one person and nearly another while drinking and driving in L.A., yet still managed to become a highly successful writer and then later director. Obviously, he served no time in jail whatsoever for either of those events. And he continued to find funding for his projects, regardless of how many box office failures he turned out over the span of several decades. As with Nicholson and Evans, something just doesn't add up here. I haven't even gotten to Houston's most notorious friend yet, Mr. Dr. George Hadell. Hadell was an LA-based doctor who appears to have been performing abortions for Hollywood in addition to being the uh, venereal disease czar uh, throughout this time frame in the 1940s. He was obsessed with surrealism as well and was a friend of the artist Man Ray. He and John Houston were part of an exclusive LA sect steeped in the surrealist movement. Other noteworthy figures active in this milieu included author and 14 Henry Miller, who was also another friend of Adele's, director Albert Lewin, patrons Walter and Louise Ahrensberg, architect Lloyd Wright, the son of Frank Lloyd Wright, fellow artists William Copley and Beatrice Wood, and the actors Edward G. Robinson and Vincent Price. George Hodell is most well-known now for the charges levied against him by his son, Steve, a former LAPD police detective. Steve Hodell has made a compelling case for his father as the murderer of Elizabeth Short, more commonly known as the Black Delilah. He has also been accused of and investigated for raping his own daughter, Tamar. Like there were rumors for years that Tamar's daughter, Fauna, was the product of incest between George and Tamar. DNA recent, recent DNA testing later disproved these charges, however. Regardless, 
There's little question that George Hodel was a very suspect individual and close to Houston. In fact, Hodel later married Houston's ex-wife and had several kids with her, including Steve Hodel, for the, I should note. In the post-war years, Hodel entered the Air Force, again, Air Force connection, and served in China for a time prior to the revolution. It's also of note that Elizabeth Short's body was filmed near Vandenberg Air Force Base. Thus, there's another odd Air Force connection here, and also surrealism and Fordianism for that matter. Hadell and Houston were obsessed with surrealism, certainly, and probably uh, Fordianism as well. So was the screenwriter Ben Hetch, also an early, early Fordian. Hetch was a friend of Houston's and probably Hodell's as well, but he was also the screenwriting partner of Charles Linear. As the listener will recall, this is the man who raised Julie Payne, Robert Towns' future wife, and who he was dating and also who was dating him and potentially helping him write the screenplay for Chinatown. In fact, Payne appears to have played a pretty significant role uh, in all the stuff related to Chinatown, which begs the question, was the Hudel saga a partial inspiration for the film? Obviously, John Houston knew Hudel while, well, while Payne grew up around Hetch, who knew Houston and probably Hodel. Did he ever share any of these allegations concerning Hodel with her? And did this contribute to the casting of John Houston as Noah Cross, a figure who rapes and impregnates his own daughter, not unlike how Hodel was accused of doing with Tamar. The thread of surrealism is an interesting one through all this as well. Houston was an early supporter in LA, but Nicholson and Robert Evans are also fans. Both owned dollies at one point, and Jack probably still does. Uh, he also, I think, did his own kind of variations in surrealistic art as well. And they also own several other art, uh, works by prominent surrealists as well. And Polanski's direction was influenced by surrealism. So this milieu of L.A. surrealists was very tight-knit during the early years, which again raises the question of whether Nicholson and Evans had heard of Adele and stories about him through these circles. And of course, Jack Nicholson ended up dating Angelica Houston, John's daughter, for years, in reading about the dynamics of this relationship, one is left with the impression uh, that it was both embarked upon partly to please John. That one is left with the impression that they both embarked upon it to please John Houston. I mean, Nicholson just absolutely revered John Houston for some reason. He idolized the man. Given the uncertainty of Nicholson's own parentage, you know, maybe this makes the relationship with the Houston family make a certain kind of sense. But again, also eerily parallels some of the stuff that um, Houston's friend George Hodel was possibly involved with, too. And again, remember, George Hodel ended up marrying Houston's ex. Though Houston apparently continued to have relations with her and other women who were tied to Hadell during the 1940s. In fact, at one point, he apparently tried to rape Tamara Hodell, which apparently George was offended by for some reason. Needless to say, it's incredibly eerie how closely the personal lives of two of Chinatown's stars mirrors that of the film's plot. And this surely was not a coincidence. 
And finally, there's the thread of the mamas and the papas that runs through all of this. As has been noted, most especially Cass Elliott and John and Michelle Phillips were regular fixtures in social circles at the Polanski house prior to Sharon Tate's murder. And it's long been rumored that John Phillips was involved in making sex tapes of a sadomasochistic nature with Polanski. Polanski had an affair with Michelle Phillips while married to Tate. Later, during the early 1970s, Nick Polanski's close friend Jack Nicholson dated Michelle Phillips for a time. That's why it's so interesting that Michelle Phillips was very close to Tamara Hodel, who has described uh, Tamar as her best friend, and in other accounts, Tamar was described as Michelle's surrogate mother. They had known one another since at least the early 1960s. Tamar also knew John Phillips, though not quite as well. She had once had an affair with a pre-mama's and papa's bandmate of uh, John Phillips and potentially introduced Michelle to him. Okay, so she was possibly the matchmaker for these two. In 1967, Tamar took George Hodel, her father, to meet Michelle Phillips while he was passing through San Francisco. It's also possible John Phillips met the doctor during this encounter as well. This is especially disturbing because Mackenzie Phillips, John's daughter from a marriage prior to Michelle, accused John of raping her and carrying on an incestuous relationship with her that lasted until she became pregnant by him. So again, this eerily parallels the allegations that Tamar made against her own father to say nothing the plot lines here from Chinatown. So again, is this a coincidence? Okay, so I think we're finally ready to get to Chinatown proper. Not that there's really a lot left to say at this point about it. I've already covered a good chunk of the background and all this other good stuff. But anyway, I'll start off with the name itself. This gets people into people's crawl a lot because Chinatown itself does not appear in the movie until the very final scenes, and it's really only bref briefly referenced uh, up to that point. So why call the thing Chinatown? Well, in this case, it's, it's probably best to take the creators at face value. I believe Robert Town described Chinatown as a state of mind, and that's apt enough. The Nicholson character, J.J. Giddies, uh, was once a cop in Chinatown. It was awash with corruption. It's implied that Jake tried to do something about this, and he was drummed out of the police force as a result. Instead of doing something, he should have been doing as little as possible. That's how one succeeds in Chinatown, by doing as little as possible. After becoming a private detective and moving a bit up the social ladder, Jack, Jake starts to think that things are maybe a little different in L.A. proper. By film's end, Chinatown, the fallacy of this belief is laid clear to him. Chinatown is simply a macrocosm for the Bonner microcosm, as above, so below, in other words. Or maybe more bluntly, all the world is a Chinatown. Jake just doesn't understand its rules, and neither do many of us. Doing as little as possible can be easier said than done. So much for the title. Now that that's out of the way, and before wrapping up, I'm going to explain the most important part of Chinatown. It's rarely if ever remarked upon despite being hidden in plain sight. 
itself only just noticed it during a recent viewing despite having seen this movie at least half a dozen times yes we're finally getting to that mysterious gentleman's club so what is it chinatown it's the albacore club a mysterious gentleman's club that no across heads it's the club behind the land purchases that will eventually make certain families in the san fernando valley rich beyond their wildest dreams and it appears to be the outfit behind the mysterious nursing home Giddy's ventures to on several occasions, uh, once having his nose sliced open in the process. Also, the, the famous first encounter between uh, the Nicholson and Houston character uh, characters, it actually happens at the Albacore uh, Club's uh, headquarters which is actually the real life headquarters of the group that it's based upon this is the famous scene in which uh, houston's character noah cross feeds uh, nicholson's character they fish with the heads uh, still on so that was a nice touch and then of course there's the nursing home the residents of the nursing home are being used as surrogate owners of the land in the san fernando valley while they angle to get the dam pushed through uh, that something is amiss is subtly hinted at throughout the nursing home. It appears to be decorated with an upside-down pentagram and a goat of Mendez at one point. Elsewhere, residents are showing knitting a flag for the Albacore Club. It has a Masonic checkerboard pattern as well as a skeleton of a tuna on it. One is uh, reminded a bit of the Jolly Rogers. On the whole, the scene plays out a lot like Polanski's satanic cult and Rosemary's Baby. It's it's like the ultimate banality of evil, be it in a yuppie apartment complex or a nursing home. That's why it's so apt, you know, I mean, you got to kind of remember up to this point. I mean, typically when you were seeing these kind of outfits, it would be in like a a gothic castle or like you know, some isolated environment in the middle of nowhere, like rural Texas or something. So it you know, you just kind of casually see this stuff unfolding at a modern apartment complex or a nursing home. And it's, you know, so no nonchalant. Uh, I, I do appreciate Polanski's approach in this regard, even though, I mean, you, it does kind of go over most viewers' heads. I do kind of feel like that this is really apt for how this kind of stuff plays out in real life. It just, you know, doesn't register with a lot of people because it's so subtle. But again, be assured, the Albacore Club does have a basis in reality. It's a stand-in for the mysterious Tuna Club of Avalon, based in Santa Catalina Island, just off the coast of L.A. And yes, in case you're wondering, it's also in the 33rd degree parallel north, because of course it is. And yes, there's no question, this is the real-life basis for the Albacore Club. As the story goes, Robert Town miraculously discovered a very rare and expensive book detailing the group's history at a used bookstore in L.A. And yes, guys, there is such a book. It's called The History of the Tuna Club, and it is quite expensive. I've seen copies available for less than, for cheap as $200, and that's when they are available. You can find a copy, like I said, it's pretty rare. Uh, now if you guys happen to have one available or know where I can find one, do let me know. Anyway, Town apparently became obsessed, uh, and originally the Albacore Club was more central to the plot. So, what is this oddly named Tuna Club of Avalon? As the story goes, it was founded by a naturalist named Charles Frederick Holder in 1898. Holder had invented big game fishing a few decades earlier and set up the society to celebrate the sport. 
It soon achieved an international reach with tuna societies appearing the world over. Interestingly, Holder also helped set up the Tormund Roses, which the famous Rose Bowl grew out of in Pasadena. He was also a big advocate for Charles Darwin, a feral naturalist, and wrote a book about him in 1891. He was also a trustee at uh, Thorpe College, which eventually became Caltech. You know, again, there's a lot of weird rumors about all that, especially if you go in the whole James Shelby Downard route with some of the weird sex parties that they were having there and so forth. Um, I should point out, too, that George Hodel briefly attended Caltech as well, so he had a connection. And he was actually drummed out, too, for having an affair with um, one of his professors at Caltech. Just give you guys an idea of how incestuous all of this is. But anyway, um, Charles Frederick Holder appears to have been greatly assisted in setting up the Tuna Club by the Banning family. Patriarch Phineas Banning is sometimes referred to as the, quote, father of the port of Los Angeles as he built the first port in the San Pedro Bay and would later expand it and laid the basis for what is the modern-day port of Los Angeles. He was also the first individual to build a railway leading into Los Angeles. It's worth noting that Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town grew up in San Pedro, which the family was based out of. And also, actually, which uh, Phineas Banning founded, for that matter, and uh, had uh, the Bannings, as they say, had deep family roots there. Towns' family also appears to have had roots there as well. His father, Lou, was a shopkeeper before becoming a successful real estate developer and moving them into a more upscale neighborhood in Brentwood. But again, this begs the question, when did Town first hear about this milieu? Again, he was possibly growing up around the Bannon family in San Pedro. But to return to the Bannon family and uh, the Santa Catalina Island. Phineas died in 1885 and his sons, William, Joseph, and Hancock, carried on the family business, the aptly named Banning Company. The Banning Company bought a majority interest in the Santa Catalina Island in 1892 and effectively owned it outright until 1919. During this time, they largely ran the island as their own private fiefdom, complete with a private security force that frequently denied entrance to the island. People of the wrong type, i.e. the poor, or anybody who didn't fit into the exclusive social circles that they ran in. Thus, even though Holder is often credited with the Tuna Club, it seems clear nothing on the island was allowed without the Banning family's consent during this time. And indeed, Holder largely became a PR man for the family, authoring multiple books on the Santa Catalina Islands, trying to hype it up as a resort for the affluent. So the Banning family, who were part of the Tuna Club, were probably the real powers behind the throne, so to speak. Supposedly under pressure from the new money flooding into L.A. via the South Pacific's railroad, new railroad line leading into the city, the Bannon family sold the island in 1919 to William Wrigley, founder of the Chewing Gum Dynasty. And the Wrigleys are very interesting in their own right as well, um, but I don't want to get too sidetracked with that, but it's very interesting that they ended up with it. Curiously, the year 1919 witnessed one of the earliest movies filmed there. It was called Terra Island. It was a starring vehicle for the legendary escape artist and British spy Harry Houdini. 
The film features the stage musician hunted on an isolated island by natives as he attempts to rescue the father of his love interest. There seems to be some similarities between this film and the later short story and film adaptations of it, of what is known as typically the most dangerous game. Keep this in mind as we shall return to that work in a moment here. Anyway, the Wrigley family continued to own about over 90% of the island until 1975, when much of their holdings were deeded over to the Catalina Island Conservatory, a nonprofit that the Wrigley family nonetheless helped set up. <clears throat> Thus, the possibility exists that they still have an interest in the island. The island was originally owned by James Lick, uh, who was the wealthiest man in California at the time of his death in 1876. Lick is the man largely responsible for creating modern-day San Francisco. At one point, he owned virtually all the land in the region, but I digress. But anyway, this was a very exclusive property. In fact, the, uh, the Catalina Island had actually become a major hub even before L.A. itself. I mean, this is what initially started to attract a lot of money into the area in the first place, the Catalina. There's another Catalina Island, too, besides the Santa Catalina Islands. But anyway, this whole you know, region was very big for a lot of these VIPs. It was a major, major resort hub during the late 19th and early 20th century for many of these exclusive families. <clears throat> anyway, the San Francisco connection to all this is highly relevant in terms of another gentleman's club closely linked to the Tuna Club in the early days, and that would be Bohemian Club of San Francisco. This is the club that's popularly known for organizing Bohemian Grove and these were festivals that they had there. At least one member of the Banning family, Hancock, was a member of the Bohemian Club. He was not alone amongst the Tuna Club members. Other members of the Tuna Club who held membership in the Bohemian Club included longtime Stanford President David Starr Jordan, fellow Stanford president and future U.S. president Herbert Hoover, William S. Goodfellow, a prominent Oakland attorney, James Irvine, and our friend Henry E. Huntington. In fact, from what I can tell, virtually all of the early Tuna Club members from, the San, Francisco, from San Francisco doubled as Bohemian Club members as well. You had people like Harry Chandler. I don't know if Chandler was a part of the Tuna Club proper, but he was a part of the real estate clique around Mulholland and Eaton that was pushing for, um, you know, the uh, the Los Angeles Aqueduct and all this other stuff. Um, so to sort of put this into real life for you guys is the, what, you know, Chinatown was getting at. I, I tend to think that Henry E. Huntington, who was also a major figure in the Tuna Club as well and sang it up. In fact, he owned a Chung. He was one of the only other landowners that the Banning family allowed into the Catalina Islands and was also instrumental in building up L.A. I think he was the true basis for the Noah Cross figure and probably the one not outright running the Tuna Club was probably one of the major forces behind it. And he later was the one who enlisted a lot of the other developers in the area, people like Chandler, H.J. Whitley, who we're going to be talking a lot about in the next installment, and some of these other people. Otis, um, Harrison Otis would be another one, too, who might have been a part of the milieu with the Society of Cincinnati and Skull and Bones going back to the East Coast. You know, again, this is why I think the importance of the Tuna Club needs to be emphasized. 
you know, it seems to be for LA, but the Bohemian Club was for San Francisco in the early years, and possibly what you know, Skull and Bones had been for some of these New England Ivy League uh, things in the early years. So this is really important, guys. Okay. All right. So were there any other connections uh, between the Bohemian Club and the Tuna Club? Well, there seems to be a certain Celtic theme present in both clubs pretty extensively. Avalon is the name of the resort town on the South Catalina Island, or the Catalina Island, Santa Catalina Island, where the Tuna Club is headquartered out of, which the Ban Bannon family long owned. In fact, they dubbed the Santa Catalina Island the, quote, Magic Isle. And of course, Catalonia in Spain, I believe is the namesake for this, is in the midst of the mysterious Pyrenees region that separates northern Spain from France. There's a lot of speculation that this is where the ancient Celts originated from. It's also a region long steeped in esotericism. You've got, you know, the Catalonian city of Girona, which is where basically the modern day Kabbalah originated from, for instance. Of course, across the border, you you know, in France, I mean, that's all Cather territory, Renee's Chateau, a lot of stuff with the Grail myths and that kind of thing as well plays into that. So it's kind of interesting, which is a holder in uh, organized the Tournament of Roses there in Pasadena. But again, there's so much with this, I don't want to get us too sidetracked. Anyway, as for um, the Bohemian Club, their entire grove play, uh, the cremation of care, all this stuff. You know, it's centered around St. Patrick converting the Druids, and it was meant as a celebration of Celtic civilization. So yes, the cremation of care was seen as a reenactment of a Druidic rite. And obviously, groups are also closely connected to Celtic faith, much like the mystical Isle of Avalon. So the official histories of these clubs insist that they were established as pleasure retreats for bored denizens of the Gilded Age to return to nature and experience a bit of culture, right? But Chinatown hints at a darker purpose, and certainly some of the Albacore Club's real-life membership members raised some serious eyebrows, okay? One member was Hal Roach Sr., a film and TV producer who owned a highly successful studio, also known as the Hal Roach Studios, specializing in comedies leading up to World War II. In 1937, MGM Studios, which the Hal Roach Studio distributed films through, was holding a convention in LA. It was to accumulate with a private party at the Hal Roach Ranch. So a casting call went out from Roach's studio to 120 female dancers. In May of that year, they arrived at the Western costume where they were outfitted in skimpy clothing. From there, they were bussed off to a remote ro location. This would be Roach's Ranch. Soon the conventioners, many of whom were quite intoxicated by this point, began to arrive. They thought the women were party favors and they began raping them. All 120 of these girls. One woman, Patricia Douglas, tried to blow the whistle on this nightmare, but the studios hired Pinkerton detectives and embarked upon a campaign of character assassination that eventually discredited her in the eyes of the public. 
And curiously, something very similar happened roughly a decade later to Tamar Hodel when she tried to expose the ancestral nature of her relationship with her father. But anyway, Roach was not the only Tuna Club member involved in the sex scandal. Uh, there was silent film star Charlie Chaplin, who was accused of rape on multiple occasions. Chaplin was also a friend of Houdini's from his time in Hollywood. Another mutual friend of both men was Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, a popular comedian from the silent film era whose career was ruined by rape allegations. Been unable to determine if Arbuckle was a member of the Tuna Club, but he certainly visited Santa Catalina Island. His 1914 film, The Sea Nymphs, was filmed there and was one of the first movies shot at the island. And he was there in the midst of Houdini filming Terror Island. Uh, so, in a minimum, you have a collection of wealthy, powerful men, several with a colorful history of sexual misconduct, on an isolated island with no formal government. What could go wrong, right? The Most Dangerous Game was first adapted in the film during 1932. Short story that it was based on came out in 1924 and it was by Richard Connell. Richard Connell, or excuse me, Richard Connell, Connell eventually became a screenwriter and was based out of Beverly Hills, no less. So he surely would have been aware of the Santa Catalina Islands at some point. But even more intriguing, it's one of the two directors behind the original film adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game. This will be Irving Pichel. So Most Dangerous Game was actually his directorial debut. Pichel had previously worked as an actor for much of the prior decade. He hailed from Pittsburgh and broke into entertainment there via theatrical work. When he relocated to California, he ended up working as a musical theater, uh, working at a musical theater as a technical director. And the theater he was working at happened to belong to the Bohemian Club. He did... Uh, and he did so well at this that they enlisted him to help with their summer pageants, which would be the cremation of care at Bohemian Grove. It's really interesting, right, guys? So, <clears throat> were people like Pichel and Houdini dropping hints at what might have been occurring at the Santa Catalina Island at some point? Well... I would be remiss if I didn't bring up actress Natalie Wood. The one-time child star got her big break when she starred opposite Jimmy Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, a notoriously cursed picture. Dean died in a car crash the same year it was released, 1955. His co-star Nick Adams died in 1968 at the age of 36. His death was listed as a suicide, but there have long been rumblings of foul play. And Wood would die at the age of 43, which I'll get to in just one moment here. But anyway, <clears throat> both she and Dean and fellow and fellow rebel without a care or without a cause co-star Dennis Hopper were all residents in the infamous Laurel Canyon, which we discussed already uh, during the 1950s. In fact, uh, Natalie Wood uh, lived in the house the Cass Elliott that Mamas and Papas eventually moved into. Uh, Natalie Wood may have also been active in the social circles uh, 
at the uh, Polanski residency prior to Sharon Tate's death in the 1960s as well. So this makes Natalie Wood's death in 1981 all the more curious. She was, it occurred in the midst of her filming the cult classic Brainstorm. Apparently there was a break in filming or something to that effect and she boarded the yacht Splendor for a getaway. She was joined on this venture by her husband, Robert Wagner, and co-star from Brainstorm, Christopher Walken. On November 28th, she left the yacht and entered a dinghy. As the official story goes, she slipped overboard and drowned, and Wagner and Walken and, Walken and others found her body on November 29th. She had fought with Robert Wagner earlier in the day, this combined with the badly bruised, with all the bruises and so forth on her body has led to a lot of suspicion of foul play over the years. Another curious factor, though, rarely addressed is where she drowned. It was right off the coast of the Santa Catalina Island. The same island that has long served as the headquarter for this mysterious gentleman's club, long linked to a bohemian grove, and possibly involved in some very bloody rituals. And that brings up a question that should have been asked long before now. Were Wood and company doing something on the island other than vacationing? Given the curious cast of characters that found their way there to say nothing of the fictional portrayals hinting at everything from incest and the hunting of human beings occurring there, it, it seems rather prudent to ask such a question. Ridiculous, right? Yet, this whole milieu around the Tuna Club appears to have appeared in numerous other films besides Chinatown, and films that often link them to incest and ritualistic serial murder, especially in regards to the Black Delilah. Is there some kind of legend circulating in Hollywood linking these things that various filmmakers have been hinting at for decades now? And does this tie together a pattern of strange deaths stretching back to the Black Delilah and possibly even earlier uh, and involving the Manson killings and Natalie Wood as well. The subject that I'm going to explore in much greater depth going forward with a couple of choice guests. The next Abercore Mystery is going to look at a couple of films that appear to be deeply steeped in this particular mythos show will hopefully be forthcoming in the near future so do stay tuned guys i'm really excited about all of this and i think you guys in particular are going to draw a lot out of this i know this is a i know a lot of you are quite fascinated by some of these subjects so yeah i think this is going to be a popular one so on that note i'm going to sign off for now as always i want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that i say as always good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. We were ready. My people there, they're feeling me. Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King.
Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Stuck down in this stick. Hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out. Cause they done let the wolves out. Shooting up the street, mama, fight or flight, adrenaline. You feel that little tingle in your feet, mama, no retreat. Mobilize your whole fleet, hit the street. Tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it. Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump, baby, we gotta go. Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the great While the greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday.